Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 44, Lion's Pride, The Battle of Wilson's Creek, August 10th, 1861. After all those episodes focusing on the very visible front lines near Washington and Richmond, it's once again time to return to the often invisible Trans-Mississippi region. That means past the Mississippi, if you don't quite sling the lingo. When last we left this very expansive land, the very aggressively pro-Union General Nathaniel Lyon had just assembled an army on the fly, personally told the Missouri governor, Claiborne Fox Jackson, a very pro-Confederate man, and general of the militia Sterling Price that he was planning to put both of them in the grave, and then did his level best to accomplish that promise. He drove them from the capital, and then from central Missouri entirely. And that was after, of course, Lion Frog-marched pro-Confederate militia through the streets of St. Louis, and then subdued the riot he started by brute force. Nathaniel Lyon was not exactly one of the all-time great diplomats, is the broad message here. This actually has some significance to the events we're about to discuss. While Abraham Lincoln had his hands full with the madness of the Washington-Richmond matters, he of course could not neglect other theaters of war, or at least he felt the need to give them everything he could as fast as he could. Of course, one might note that Lincoln personally was unlikely to forget the Far West, Few presidents of modest means had traveled quite so much as Lincoln, who voyaged up and down the great Mississippi River, and had spent much of his life riding circuit and politicking in and around Illinois. He was personally close to the extremely influential Blair family of Missouri, and of course, past leaders of Missouri and Kansas directly shaped the birth of the Republican Party. In other words, President Lincoln had enough on his plate for three great men together, but he would find some way to manage Missouri if the thing could be done at all. As part of that effort, he quickly dispatched one of the Republican Party's star personalities, John C. Fremont. We last discussed Fremont some time ago. For a quick refresher, he was a soldier in the Army Corps of Topographical Engineers, a semi-military body that undertook vital surveys of the western frontier. Although a military department, much of its work was essentially civilian in nature, and some expeditions were led by civilian experts rather than military officers. In addition, the practical requirements of charting and mapping could result in bizarre situations, such as army officers deciding to lead their own private military campaigns alongside armed sailors and other oddities. In any case, Fremont excelled at this work and made extensive travels into the interior. The ambitious young Fremont allied himself to Missouri Senator Thomas Hart Benton, the apostle of westward expansion. Senator Benton made sure to spread tales of Fremont's adventures far and wide, making him one of the most famous names in the nation, and in return, Fremont stole the heart of his daughter, Jessie Benton. Fremont, unable to stand still, however, took orders from President Polk directing him to explore a route out to California and maybe, maybe not, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, detach it from Mexican control. This Fremont did, although in the end it required considerable help from the regular army in the Mexican-American War to secure it. Fremont, however, got booted from his self-appointed leadership role as he was really, really bad at it, and of course had no legal authority over the supposed Bear Flag Republic. Things didn't work out too badly for him, though, for Fremont received 
no real punishment for his high-handed actions. He then returned to California and struck gold, literally. He became wealthy almost overnight. After becoming in California politics with an anti-slavery bent, his combination of fame and success rocketed him to become the Republican Party's first presidential nominee in 1856. He lost, but it was a pretty good showing for all of that, and John C. Fremont was still a young man. When the Civil War broke out, too, Fremont was only 48, making him four years younger than Lincoln. And he seemed even younger still, with flowing locks and restless energy. At the time, he was actually on a business trip of a sort to Paris, trying to raise money from investors. Lincoln, though, figured that a military officer of such a high reputation with such a noteworthy name and political history was worth cultivating, and he considered naming Fremont as ambassador to France. This might at first appear like an odd choice, but of course past American practice had made use of clever celebrities and managing relationships with the Quai d'Orsay. However, Secretary of State William Seward would have none of it, on the grounds that Fremont was too radically abolitionist in temperament. This objection had some amount of validity, at least in the Lincoln administration's official stance at that point in time but it may also have been more an expression of Seward's desire to avoid dealing with the bubbly Fremont if he could avoid it. So, in July of 1861, Lincoln appointed the just-returned Fremont as Major General and Commander of Union Forces in Missouri, or more specifically, the Department of the West. At that specific moment, this vast jurisdiction ostensibly covered the entire range from the Appalachian Mountains to the Mississippi River, and all the way thence to the Pacific Ocean. The reality, not surprising, was a bit different. Fremont could hardly manage all of this, and he had no resources to do it anyhow. The reality of the situation actually meant that Fremont's attention would mostly stay tightly focused on Missouri. The Battle of Bull Run ironically stabilized the Atlantic theater, at least for now. McClellan's control over the western mountain region of Virginia largely ended that area as a theater of war. Kentucky, at this point in time, still proclaimed her neutrality and tried, and failed, to negotiate a political compromise to end the war. They were unwilling to accept that war had now become inevitable. This brought a temporary end to fighting in half of the United States, leaving only skirmishes and Missouri. There was another reason for Fremont's rapid rise to command here. He may not have had experience with high command, but of course few, if any, officers did. But Fremont had actually led men in battle, and organized entire expositions that required marches hundreds of miles long, and Lincoln presumably guessed that could prove an invaluable asset at this point in time. But of course, Fremont had all those old ties to Missouri, which might come in very handy under the circumstances. But the other, other reason is that, well, the only other obvious choice in this moment, General Nathaniel Lyon, made an impolitic choice. He had become a political liability, even though he was a great military asset. General Lyon had the support of the Blair family, yes, but he had driven moderates in Missouri into utter fury with his violence. Among others, Sterling Price went over to the Confederacy in part as a response to Lyon's actions. And now, most moderate Missourians did not join him, but they did demand a change. So Lincoln put in place Fremont, 
hoping he could manage the descent. This did not go well, but that is a story for another day. This episode instead will focus on the immediate military consequences, which became the fateful battle of Wilson's Creek. Now, after Nathaniel Lyon drove Governor Jackson and Sterling Price from central Missouri, he refused to sit on his laurels. Instead, he carefully tracked the fleeing Confederates in the hope of destroying them or dispersing them quickly, or, alternatively, cutting them off from Arkansas. Doing so would likely secure Missouri from any reasonable threat for the remainder of the war. It might open the way into Arkansas for a further advance. Unfortunately, Lyon soon learned that Price, who held a major general's rank in the militia, but not the Confederacy, expected thousands of fresh reinforcements led by Brigadier Ben McCulloch. Among other things, the Texan McCulloch brought extensive experience fighting Native Americans and the Mexican army alike. But the troops he brought were also disciplined and well-trained by 1861 standards. This was a problem. Price, with Lyon following after, had gone quite a ways off, deep into southern Missouri, much closer to the Arkansas border. Near Carthage, more than 140 miles from the capital at Jefferson City, General Price waited. Now, Lyon had little reason to fear Sterling Price's original force, about the size of his own but not as well-trained, and who had been beaten and driven off before. But McCulloch's arrival would double that army, and allow Price to launch a new aggressive assault of his own, with the aim of conquering Missouri for the Confederacy. So, of course, General Lyon really did have good reason to attempt to arrest that momentum while he had the chance. The alternative meant a retreat through Missouri while desperately scrounging up enough men to fight back, with the only alternative being to back down and possibly get defeated along the way, Lyon proposed to attack. He, he wasn't really the kind of person to willingly back down, in case that wasn't clear. Lyon advanced using rail and a stiff march to cross the 120 miles or so, separating his forces from Price. Now, before we get into the resulting battles, we need to introduce one other player, General Franz Ziegler. Ziegler was a 36-year-old veteran of the Revolution of 1848. A German liberal, he raised a volunteer force and fought for the ideals of that rebellion, envisioning a united, democratic Germany. Like many similar revolutionaries of the era, he decamped to America when the cause failed, yet his ideals never did. Given that he had more experience in the military than just about anyone else just then, he led a 1,200-man force, mostly German, in defending their new government. These Germans were somewhat like McCulloch's force in discipline and drill, just less in number at that particular moment. Ziegel led his contingent on a scouting march down to the Arkansas border, where he received fresh intelligence placing Price farther north, closer to Carthage. Ziegel cheerfully went on the assault, outnumbered or no. He went up there and, in effect, punched Price in the nose on July 4th, 1861. That was an auspicious day, but the battle only went all right. In a short, sharp fight, he drove Price off the field once more. The Confederate infantry, untrained and ill-equipped, buckled under the pressure of Union artillery and infantry fire. Only Price's dominance in cavalry allowed him to get away. Because Ziegel's force was so small, 
he couldn't risk allowing the Missouri writers to get around his flanks by acting too aggressively in the fighting. So Price escaped, running down to the Missouri border. Ziegel started that fight outnumbered six to one. Well, four to one if you count the Missourians who actually had guns. But, either way, it was a Union victory. Unfortunately, more recruits poured in for Price. Pro-Confederate Missourians swelled his ranks, and many of them brought their own arms and horses. This points towards an element of the Confederate service, definitely in Missouri but with applicability elsewhere. Many Confederates had some resources, though not always slaves. Union men rarely had the wherewithal to ride their own horses to war. However, the Confederate volunteers also brought very high morale and a willingness to fight with few resources. Of course, a lot of the guns they did bring were old muskets, squirrel guns, or even shotguns. These were really not very useful in the military context of the Civil War. These matters all set the stage for the upcoming battle as well. Price's force swelled to over 8,000 men, and he then successfully united with Ben McCulloch. Meanwhile, Lyon's force was shrinking as soldiers left, their 90 days done. He was a long way from supplies and had no reinforcements waiting. General Lyon knew he must fall back, but to do so in the face of this force might invite destruction. So, with retreat again, likely to result in another inglorious rout like Bull Run, Lyon chose attack. Now, in fact, Lyon had some advantages he didn't even know about. As it turns out, Sterling Price and Ben McCulloch got on together about as well as Price and Lyon did. McCulloch just flatly refused to cooperate unless Price, in effect, let him take over. The ostensible reason for this is that the brigadier, McCulloch, took his rank from the Confederacy, whereas the Major General Price did not yet have rank there. Unfortunately, however, McCulloch would prove a good fighter, but not a very good general officer. McCulloch led the men to camp near Wilson's Creek, not far from Springfield, largely on the reasoning that his men could harvest the corn from a nearby field. While Lyon's Union boys were short of supplies, the Confederates also had the same problem and far more mouths to feed. In early August, this is where Lyon decided to attack him. He had a good plan, too, essentially to ambush the Confederates in the early morning and drive them back while still disorganized and sleepy. Now, the night before the battle, however, Ziegel came around to Lyon and suggested an alternative. Let him, that is, Ziegel, take a portion of the force and circle around the Confederate position. The attack would then be launched on two fronts and drive towards one another. The advantage of doing this is that it would prevent a situation similar to Bull Run, where Beauregard and Johnston's troops fell back piecemeal until they could eventually stabilize the lines and counterattack. That was a real concern, given the sizable force under McCulloch and Price. General Lyon estimated it at almost 18,000 men, although in truth that was only 12 in total. That said, even 12,000 men? Well, that was twice the size of his force and more. To be clear about something as well, dividing an inferior force in the face of an enemy is a risky tactic, and always has been, to the point that many military manuals flatly oppose the notion. And yet, throughout history many bold generals have done just that to achieve stunning victories, from Hannibal Barca to Robert E. Lee himself.
So Lyon approved the idea, and Siegel took a detachment on a wide circle around the unwary Confederates, who failed to detect the movement even with much superior cavalry. Happily for Lyon, it rained that night, and the ill-disciplined Confederate pickets, well, just didn't bother. So, in the damp, early-morning gloom on August 10th, Lyon brought fewer than 4,000 men to the field, and yet the Confederates remained entirely unaware. And this field was not such a bad location for them to fight, at least in Lyon's view, for it was a relatively cramped area that could limit the power of numbers and amplify firepower. The enemy camp stretched over two miles on either side of the creek, but it was narrow, and his soldiers might well drive straight down its length. So the men waited, hoping to hear the crack of rifles that signaled Siegel's attack. Just after dawn, they began to hear the sounds of trouble stirring, and the Confederates finally noticed that they had a lot of very angry-looking men on their front door. With that, General Lyon let slip the dogs of war, and charged his men to crest a position overlooking the camp. Today, it's known simply as Bloody Hill. At that moment, on the far end, Ziegel opened up with an artillery barrage that caught the Confederates entirely unaware. As his men blazed away, they threw a considerable proportion of that camp into chaos. Hundreds, maybe thousands of Missouri soldiers fled their beds and then the field. The problem was that there were many thousands more. General Sterling Price, though shocked at the surprise attack, quickly regained his footing and rode hither and yon, rallying all the men he could. On the north end of the fight, General Lyon retained control of the hill, but he couldn't advance much beyond it. His soldiers got held up there by the thick brush, which gave time for ranks of the Confederates to move up and fire until those units were driven off in turn. The Union soldiers had better arms, but the sheer weight of numbers just pushed them back. Down on the southern flank, Ziegel rapidly ran into more trouble than he could handle. His force was just too small to sweep through and crush the enemy camp entirely, and he wound up sidling over towards the west. Unfortunately for him, Ben McCulloch had heard the trouble. Now, he had camped a little bit west, and while his band of Texan and Arkansas soldiers was smaller than Price's Missourians, they were also better trained and, crucially, had not received the brunt of the ambush. Worse yet, another moment of confusion occurred when Ziegel saw some of McCulloch's soldiers wearing gray uniforms, similar to those of a band of Iowa troops. By the time he realized the truth, it was all over. Charged in front and with another force shooting from the flank, Ziegel's men cracked and ran. They were now tired and broken and facing four or five times their own numbers without any possibility of relief. This all but guaranteed that General Lyon's force would, in turn, be overwhelmed. And so it was. Fighting atop Bloody Hill, the Federals tired, while McCulloch's fresh troops added their weight to the fight. Indeed, they had just captured Siegel's artillery and began firing shells up the hill. The men recognized the guns by the sound. Hearing no more gunfire from the southern end of the camp, they knew that Siegel had been driven off or worse. General Lyon struggled to keep his soldiers in the fight. He walked back and forth rallying them, but suddenly turned pale, a stream of blood flowing from his head. He was pulled back behind the lines to recover, 
muttering, Midday is lost. But the wound turned out not to be nearly so serious as first thought. After a few moments, he regained his strength, and he rode out to cheer on his men. Perhaps the Confederates, who had received a nasty shock that morning, might turn tail if pressed, and Lyon intended to at least try, with a raging attack down the hill. Fate intervened. A bullet found his heart, and Lyon fell dead on the battlefield. Not surprisingly, the fight quickly went out of the exhausted Union men, and they fell back. And yet, this was no mere repeat of Bull Run, and they were not nearly so hard-pressed as poor Siegel down south. Major Sturgis, yes, a major, because the highest-ranking officer still active on the field was a major, organized a retreat. But it was a careful and measured retreat, not a rout. Still, one imagines that the Union troops felt the bitter sting of defeat in that moment, as they marched away from the battlefield, having lost their commander, lost the fight, and it wasn't even noon. Casualties, once the battered Federals were groups and counted them, were both terrible and arguably not as bad as they could have been. They came back with around 1,100 men wounded and another 250 dead. The Confederates, for their part, had very similar numbers with a few more deaths. Given the massive disparity in numbers going into that fight, this was ultimately by no means a small accomplishment for the Union force. And unlike Bull Run, few Union soldiers were captured precisely because no fatal rout occurred. Whatever they lacked in manpower, the troops under Lyon and Siegel clearly did not lack courage or fortitude. In fact, Lyon had delivered a surprisingly strong blow to Price overall. Again, the casualties were relatively light for Price, at least in proportion. But many of the men who fled that initial ambush never did come back. They went home and thought the better of making war. True, Price still had a large army. But as Price would repeatedly experience during the war, that army was going to dwindle rapidly. In addition, the Battle of Wilson's Creek ultimately bought crucial time to consolidate forces and bring those being raised across the Midwest down to Missouri and give them enough drill for a good fight. Frankly, the Union should hope for defeats such as these. In retrospect, General Nathaniel Lyon was a very unusual man, high-strung and often high-handed. He responded with extreme aggression and arguably cost the Union some amount of support. And yet, his actions also worked. Lyon's quick and decisive choices, justified or not, drove out a scheming and traitorous governor and kept that man from making any successful ploys to join the Confederacy. He attempted, and came very close, to cutting off Price and preventing him from seeking any assistance. And when that failed, he made sure that his actions would do the most good for the Union. Even at Wilson's Creek, with a very limited force and under dire threat, he made the right choices, even if they weren't the easy choices. Of course, those choices cost him his life. He became the first general officer to fall in the war but certainly not the last. Many a good man would follow Nathaniel Lyon to the grave, including those wearing general's insignia. And nearly all good generals on either side of the war came under fire, often many times. It was just that kind of war, and officers in the main proved their courage by accepting the danger and fighting on. More to the point, 
While the country reeled at first in worry at this defeat and mourned a new hero, they also learned that Bull Run wasn't a trend. Yes, Wilson's Creek was a defeat, but it was one heck of a defeat. Union boys had deliberately stood up and fought a far larger army to the end, and even then marched away with honor intact. It also put to lie the southern notion that a nation of mechanics would not fight. And yet, strange as it may sound, that would actually be the end of the great battles of 1861. There would be skirmishes and sieges and some pretty impressive naval assaults. But in fact, the great battles of 1861 are over. However, this podcast is only getting started. Thank you for listening to the American Civil War Podcast. I hope you'll join us next time.